0: Welcome to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, we talked to Ted Wyman, Winnipeg Sun Sports Editor, covering the Briar and Lethbridge. We'll talk about Brad Gush's amazing accomplishment, winning the three players, as well as all the changes coming to curling, including Jennifer Jones announcing that her team is splitting up. We'll also talk to Ken Bolke, who covers the Vegas Golden Knights, taking on the Jets Tuesday night. We'll preview the action coming up on the podcast. Of course, one of the big things this weekend, Brad uh, Brad Gushu with an enormously historic accomplishment. The first team to ever win a Briar with three players. How does that add to his legacy? We'll talk now with Ted Wyman, who covers curling for the Winnipeg Sun, their sports editor, and a frequent guest on the CJOB Sports Show. Ted, how are you doing tonight?
1: Doing great, Christian. How are you, my friend?
0: I'm doing well. Uh, Tell me honestly, when Mark Nichols went down with COVID Friday, did you think Brad Gushu had any chance of winning this tournament?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. I mean, Brad Gushu coming into the tournament was already suggesting that they had little chance of winning because they were so tired coming out of playing in Beijing just two weeks earlier and, uh, going through the, uh, the, you know, the jet lag. And personally, I went through the jet lag as well, coming through, coming back from China. And I understand what he was talking about. And yet they went out there and they were playing so well. And then that happens. So no, I, I I thought they were done for, but look at what happened. It's, uh, you know, and, and you talk to many people in the curling community, it's, truly a uh, impressive accomplishment.
0: Was there any possible advantage to curling with three? I know you lose Mark Nichols line calling and his shot making, but the fact that you have two players just throwing more stones, getting more reps, is there a way that can help you?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, not like losing Mark Nichols, isn't good, right? It's never going to make you a better team and you lose a player of that quality, but certainly playing with three With those two incredible players, Jeff Walker and Brett uh, Gallant, taking uh, six of the shots every end as opposed to perhaps bringing in uh, a fifth player who isn't as familiar with that, there's just no question. There's no doubt you're going to go with three. You're going to go with the guys that know what they're doing, and that makes all the sense in the world. I I don't think there's an advantage to playing with three because there's reasons why you have four. It's why – you know, and, and Mark Nichols, again, he's one of the great players of all time in this game, one of the great thirds. So it, it's not because he wasn't there that they won, but they really persevered. And you, you look at, you talk to some of the other curlers in this game and ask them what Jeff Walker and Brett Gallant did, just in terms of um, of an incredible performance compared to what they usually do. And that's the way they describe it it's something really special what they pulled off
0: how much do you think mix doubles helped in in gallant and walker being able to perform with just one sweeper or getting up and sweeping right after throwing their stone or in walker's case calling line when he normally wouldn't do that
1: i have to say a lot christian i mean there's it, brett Galant even said eight years ago if you had been in the same position, you wouldn't have really had that understanding of what to do. If you're Jeff Walker in the house, or if you're Brett Gallant trying to sweep by yourself, because there was no mixed doubles. But both of those players have played a lot of mixed doubles. In fact, Brett Gallant is going to represent Canada in mixed doubles in the uh, this year with his fiance Jocelyn Peterman. And the the fact is. They have advanced their skills in this game because of that, and it did really show through in that final yesterday and in those playoff games. The fact is, if you know, I, I was lucky enough to talk to eight to ten really great curlers today, people who are in the Briar, people who are in the Scotties regular, regularly, and I asked them what they thought of what happened there with the Gushu team, and they said, that is something pretty amazing. It doesn't necess- it looked reasonably easy when you watched it. It looked like something they pulled off without too much you know going outside of their comfort zone. But the truth is, I think they did go outside of their comfort zone and they did handle it extremely well.:
0: Do you think that helped them in a weird way? The whole uh, you know they already tempered expectations going into the tournament but also now this kind of rallying point of, of doing it for Mark. Maybe nobody believes in us because there's only three of us to help them get over whatever fatigue they had, whatever hump and and kind of just uh, take care of business here against teams that are very good. And Kui and Botcher that again, Kui Botcher, Gushu are the only three teams that have been in a Briar final in the last six years.
1: Yeah. Kind of amazing that that's the case. And there they are again in the final three. Um, I, you know, I, I always got the sense with Brad that he was tempering it from the... Uh, so I was at the Olympics in, in China, and I talked to Brad there about going to the Briar, and he was tempering it already, saying, I don't think we're going to be able to complete compete to our highest level if we go there, no matter what, because we're going to be tired. And then they came back, and then just before the Briar started, he said, well, I feel that way again. I'm still thinking we're just a little too... Uh, tired, we're, we're lacking focus, it's going to be tough. He's been tempering it all the way, and then look at that. They end up playing as well as anybody. He told me during the middle of the event that they were just playing with house money. They didn't really feel like they had it, that they were as comfortable as they wanted to be, but they just were playing really well, and as a result, they just kept carrying on. Losing Mark was a big blow, but they handled that extremely well again. And I don't know, man, you talk to a lot of people today and they will tell you that that is something nobody ever expected to see a team being able to win with three at an event like the Briar.
0: And another big theme coming out of this year's Briar is just how, how much it was talked about that almost every team you see out there probably won't be together going forward. And we see teams change all the time after Olympics that's when we saw the the Anderson super team get put together with, obviously, great return, three Scotties titles since they did that. Uh, so how much change are you anticipating, Ted? And when do we start seeing these changes? Is it going to be in the next couple of weeks? We're just going to see announcement after announcement?
1: Well, in case you didn't see it, uh, Christian, within the last five minutes, Jennifer Jones just announced that her team is going their separate ways. So. Oh, there's there's one domino right off the bat. I think we expected that. But uh she did uh she did say that that's uh that this team is going their separate ways. We know Don McEwen announced her retirement recently. We know that uh, Jocelyn Peterman has you know, I think she's moving back to Alberta with Brett Glanty. He's also probably not gonna be a part of the Gushu team anymore because they're they're both moving to settle down, they're getting married and settling down and um Jennifer Jones made that announcement today, which is, I was a little surprised to see that this early from her. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's the end of an era right now in curling for a lot of teams. As you said, I don't know of any personally that have actually announced that they're staying together. The option is out there for many, many, many of these teams on the men's and women's side to uh, move on and break up. I would have to think that Carrie Anderson's team with three straight. Canadian championships might be the one that stays together.
0: Absolutely. And so teams we're used to seeing together uh, like Gunlicks' team or or Mike McEwen's team, we might see some roster changes there. And a big part of roster changes too, Ted, is just the residency rules and who can play where. And they've been relaxed a little bit, but I want to talk to you about an article you you wrote a few days ago about curlers (laughs) pushing for significant changes to the briar. There were so many games in this tournament that weren't any good. Uh, there was, you know, the odd match that you knew that, that it was, okay, these are the four teams in each pool that are, are going to push for a playoff spot. And then there's just a big drop-off. We've seen uh, format changes so often in the last decade with these tournaments, the Scotties and Breyer. Did you did you get any consensus talking to curlers what changes need to be made going forward to our national championships?
1: Uh, I don't know about consensus. <laughs> that's a, That's a tough one. There's not a lot of consensus... Of what the changes need to be but there's a ton of consensus that there needs to be change period i think that um the curlers in this country would like to go to the table with curling canada with all the powers that be with all the stakeholders in curling and have a deep discussion about where this goes in the future and it's not just about you know, when when you talk about this, sometimes people say, well, this is elite curlers wanting the best for themselves. I do not believe that that's the case. I think this is elite curlers trying to push for something that will make it better for the game in general. And we're talking about a country right now that has not succeeded on the international stage for a considerable time now. We have not done very well at the Olympics. We've had some troubles at the World Championships the last couple of years. And... Also, we have a problem with grass, grassroots curling. There's not, um, a, a, there's not a great ability for young teams to break through and have a chance to succeed at any level in this country once they're out of juniors. And I think what the curlers would like to do is try to create a situation where there's a, a better um, ability, a better path forward for young curlers, where there's a better... Situation for um, uh, keeping, perhaps with some situations, the uh, the Brier and Scotties as it is as a true a national championship with all the provincial teams involved, but also having sort of an elite level of curlers that maybe are the ones that are more likely to uh, compete on the world stage at at uh, the World Championships and at the Olympics and. You know, maybe a different way of setting up for both of them because the residency rules limit so much of what curlers can do right now. That that makes it extremely hard for Canada to compete right now with some of the best teams in the world. And yet, you also need to keep all these other things in consideration. It's multi-layered, Christian. It's very difficult, but I think that that's why I why there's a strong belief that there has to be a curling summit of sorts to try to figure all this out.
0: Before I let you go, Ted, uh, the the Women's World Championship starts in a matter of days out in BC with Carrie Anderson actually getting to play in front of fans as Team Canada for the first time. Just a reminder to the folks at home, because I think these, these changes were mentioned a long time ago. There are some rule uh, tinkerings happening at this tournament, correct?
1: Correct, yeah. Well, one in particular, yep, for sure, the uh, tick rule. There will be no ticks allowed, which, uh, you know, when you talk to people who aren't huge curling people, they sort of say, well, big deal, whatever. But the truth is, in curling, if if a team has the hammer going into the 10th end or into an extra end or tied going into a 10th end, they almost always win. Now, it's a little more obvious in men's curling. In women's curling, there is a better chance of a steal happening, but it's not a ton. So what they've done is uh, the World Curling Federation has instituted a rule that says you cannot tick a rock off the center line when it's in the free guard zone in, uh, you know, in any situation. So when you're talking about these extra ends, there's not going to be that clearing of the front of the house that we've seen for so long, which allows teams to basically always have a free shot to the rings to try to win the game. And it looks like what might happen now is, and, and I talked to Matt Dunstone, a Manitoba curler who uh, represents Saskatchewan, about this, and I asked him, what do you think the difference will be in terms of um, the chances of a team winning an extra end without the hammer? And he said, well, it, it's now about 7 to 10 percent, and he thought, after the no tick rule comes in it'll be 30 to 40%. That's a big difference and I think it should be a really great change for curling.
0: Yeah, we saw last night once the the ticks were made like Gooshy had had to make an easy hit. Like, it was clear, let's just get to the, the last rock because that's all that's going to matter. And instead, I said tinkerings because there were a couple rules that were going to be put in place that they decided not to, like getting rid of extra ends and changing how time was allotted from just the whole game to having time each it end. It still could come down the road,
1: down. Christian. I mean, honestly, it could. They're they they, they they're still talking about this thing. They're talking about a lot of it with mixed doubles. The The World Curling Federation has a lot of ideas that are based on trying to promote the game and trying to make it better for television and whatnot. And and those rules are still in play. There's no question about it. Uh, Per end timing, uh, no extra ends, things that make it fit into a slot. But in terms of the one rule they were able to sell on curling this year was this no tick rule. I think the curlers really like it, and I think it's going to make the game better. We'll see how it goes down the road.
0: We'll see how it goes starting this weekend with Carrie Anderson out uh, west in the World Championships. Thanks, Ted, as always, and uh, enjoy uh, the rest of your day off here today.
1: Great pleasure, Christian. Thanks very much.
0: We move on to tomorrow night's game between the Vegas Golden Knights and the Winnipeg Jets, two teams that are in the wildcard chase. One team trying to get back there, and one team suddenly finds themselves there. And we find ourselves talking about the Golden Knights with Ken Bolke of Sinbin.Vegas. Ken, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So how did the Vegas Knights, Golden Knights, find themselves all of a sudden one point above Dallas for the final playoff spot in the West?
2: Well, it's been uh, a harsh dive, I guess. They've lost four straights, seven of the last ten, basically... I think they're four and nine with uh, Mark Stone on LTIR, which is basically the same time Eichel came back. But it's mainly injuries. I think that's kind of the biggest piece of the puzzle that they're down, you know, nine players that would be in the lineup at the moment. But it's more than just that. Like I, I think that's the biggest piece of it. But uh, there are more issues than that,
0: such as.
2: Uh, such as they don't defend the way they used to. They're not getting the goaltending that they have gotten in the past. You know, they're like 20th in the league in, say, percentage when they were basically number one and had the best in a trophy guy. Uh, last season, uh, their scoring has been a huge problem, specifically during this time where they've been without Stone. They're having a hard time getting three goals in the same game. Um, they can get 40 shots, but they don't score. So it's, you know, power play has been a mess. The penalty kill has been okay. So, it, you know, it's it's much more than just your injuries.
0: So looking at this season, then it, they were up towards the top of the Pacific behind Calgary for a lot of the season. And now they've, they've slipped behind. I saw a tweet uh, on the Sinbin Twitter account saying that this is the lowest point in the franchise's history. Yeah, And I have to say, that's a pretty blessed experience. If this is the lowest point in franchise history five years in, that, oh no, you might miss the playoffs. Wow. Oh yeah. Like I'm
2: not, I'm not sitting here (laughs) saying like, this is some crazy low point for any franchise, but you think back, they've been out of the playoffs this deep and basically never, I guess they were somewhat close in 2020. Like it was, 55, 60 games when they switched the coach out and it, you know, it was starting to look a little dicey there, but even then they weren't in this bad of shape. And I'm, I'm talking losses at home. I'm talking power play issues. I'm talking about making a huge blockbuster trade to bring in Jack Eichel. He comes in and they can't win games when he comes in. Like it's starting to look not only as a downward trend for now, but also for the future, which that's just never been the case for this franchise in the five years.
0: So this is a team that's been uh, going in a bit of the wrong direction. Salary cap space is not there. So is there any thought of them doing anything at the trade deadline a week from tonight?
2: Oh, yeah, there's always going to be. As long as the guys that are in charge are in charge, Kelly McCrimmon and George McPhee. You can go back through the history of George McPhee's uh, career at the GM. It's pretty much always a buy, unless a couple of years. There were two times in his time in Washington, 17 years where he sold heavy. I don't think they're going to do that might be the best option, but I don't think they're going to do that. As far as like, can they do it They're They have so many guys that are eligible for long-term IR that we have no idea whether they're going to come back that I would be shocked if they're ever healthy the rest of the season. So they're 9 million over now. I think they could probably reasonably get away with being 15 by the end of next week. Yeah. I don't think that's all that crazy. I don't think it's a good idea, but I could see them doing it.
0: So what do they need then?
2: <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, they need everything. someone who can score. Uh, they need some forwards who actually come back uh harder and defend, which most of their players used to do that and they don't seem to want to do that as well this year. They could use a, a high end defense first defenseman. Um, they could use I I would they could use Robin Leonard being healthy, but if that's not the case, then they need an upgrader upgrade in the goal. So everything, yeah.
0: I mean a lot of that seems like Mark Stone could could really help that. People when they saw him go on IR thought, "Oh, they're doing the Nikita Kucherov thing. They're circumventing the cap." He is actually hurt, right? Oh
2: yeah, 100%. Like he he's been hurt pretty much the entire season. Game 2 he had something goofy that happened and he straightened his back out real weird and then they had to carry him off the ice. It was it was real scary looking and then a month later he was back. Kind of in and out of the lineup since then, and then you know they said, well, let's go ahead and put him on the shelf for a little while. If he was healthy, they have enough other players on that could go on LTIR that they could activate him right now. I think the cap circumvention was more, you know, the timing of exactly when it happened. It very well, you know, it pretty much happened exactly the moment that Jack Eichel was ready. And then there was also this thought of like, well, if they get past March 21st and he's still on long-term IR, that they actually won't be able to activate him. So that's where it kind of came in. He's definitely hurt, but is he hurt for exactly as long as the season's going to last? That's a different story.
0: So this road trip, the Golden Knights are on right now, has been a disaster. They go to Philly and lose 2-1. Buffalo lose 3-1. Penguins lose 5-2. And then yesterday, they lose 6-4 to the Columbus Blue Jackets. So they're wrapping it up tomorrow night here in Winnipeg hoping to salvage anything out of it as they could end the night outside of the playoff picture as you, as you mentioned for the first time in quite some time this late in the season how much pressure is there on vegas right now in that city to to turn this around right now and get something out of this road trip
2: definitely a lot i think it's it, you know it's unacceptable to go 3 and 10 or whatever they've been you know you 4 and 9 in the past 13 or 14 or whatever it's been like it's it's not good uh, road trips they've been good this season like they went to Carolina Florida and Tampa and Washington and stole like five points out of that road trip so to play the teams that they're playing and get absolutely nothing like you've got to come back with something but it also it's like if they were to lose tomorrow to Winnipeg who is a not horrible team but they're certainly not top of the league type of team if you were to lose that one You've basically gone on a road trip where you should have gotten out of there with a number of wins. You have absolutely nothing. And you're coming home to play Florida and Nashville and L.A. and Winnipeg comes back. It's, it's, it's not good. So it's, it's a tough situation. Or they go back to Winnipeg again.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's a, a quick little two-game homestand. And then they yeah. go to Minnesota, Winnipeg, and then you're back for Nashville. Right. Uh, right after the, the trade deadline. You're here the day after the trade deadline next Tuesday. Uh, let's talk about Lauren Brassois. You mentioned they wanted a healthy Robin Leonard. Bressois was here in Winnipeg for three seasons and was a, a pretty nice backup for Connor Hellebuck, especially last year. He was really good. Uh, his numbers were solid. This year, 278 goals against average isn't bad, but the 899 save percentage isn't good. He's 10-8-3, so I take it that he has not been good enough, or has he been put into a position yeah. where he's pl- had to play too much?
2: I think it's a little bit of both. Like, has he been awesome as a backup? No. Has he been terrible? No. He has been asked to play a little bit too much. They put him in back-to-back, so at least one situation recently. Um, it, you know, it seems like there's a book on him that if you shoot high glove, you probably have a pretty good shot of scoring. I'm assuming that was probably the case when he was up there as well. He's a backup goalie for a reason. He's been a backup goalie for his entire career. He got paid as a backup goalie despite hitting free agency. He's playing like a backup goalie. He can get you a good game here or there. He can also have a good game where he's not going to do that well. So I wouldn't blame the season on Loren Brassois, but I also don't think he's saving it.
0: All right. So looking at this team right now, we've seen before in the past, Gerard Gallant getting fired. as a chance to change it up. Is Pete DeBoer's job in Jeopardy at all right now, or is it too late in the season to say that?
2: Um, it is late in the season, but I would say, yeah, it's gotta be. I mean, they, they have a precedent of firing a coach pretty late in the season, you know, before, um, they, like I said, they've never been out of the post season this deep into the season. So who knows what they're going to do, but I don't think really anybody's going to be safe moving forward. There is an argument to be made that, like, what good does it do if you make the change now, and then what is the answer if you were to do it? Like, the only real coach out there is one very familiar to everyone that's listening to this now, and that would be Paul Maurice, and I'm not sure he wants to do it. So what is the option if you fire Pete DeBoer? That's where I think Gallant was a little easier because they had Pete DeBoer to plug right in. I don't think there is that option out there right now. Fair enough. Fair enough.
0: Uh, Is the experience of going to a game in Vegas still as good as it was uh, when the, the, I guess, novelty first began when the team first arrived? Is it still as good?
2: I think if you're going for the first time, it's still going to be pretty awesome. There's a number of things that they do and just the sound system, how loud it can get in there. And and it, it does, even if they're not playing all that well, it gets pretty loud but I do think that there is a different energy from what there used to be based solely on the fact that they're just not winning as much as at home. They're 16 and 16 at home this year, where in the past they were easily a 700 points percentage team at home, pretty much the rest of the franchise history. So the belief of, this is going to go our way no matter what this looks like, isn't quite there anymore. And I think you can kind of feel that permeating through the crowd. So it's not quite the same, but it's still an awesome building to go watch a game in just because of what the building is.
0: Well, that's part of what it is to be a sports team, right? You have a hockey team now and it's, hey, guess what? It's not always awesome. So you're going to have to deal with disappointment and this is what it feels like.
2: Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's not fun, and I think fans are learning about it. But you know, they'll they'll get through it. They'll figure it out.
0: So, just uh, one last thing before I let you go: What do you see being a difference maker in tomorrow night's game, and how these teams match up?
2: Uh, I think step one is just they're going to have to get a lot out of Jack Eichel, which isn't all that crazy of a thought. Like he's, they're pretty much a one line team at the moment. However, they decide to roll it out. It's going to be Eichel. Marchessault will probably be on his wing. And then whether they go back to William Carlson, who's a center on his wing, or if they go down the road of, you know, Stevenson, who's also a center, Dodonoff has been an option, whichever way they go, that first line is going to have to do a majority of the damage. Uh, so it's going to come down to Eichel. And then the key is going to be, you know, can they shut down some pretty good options over there in Winnipeg? And then again, defense, if, it, if the If the defense plays at a high level, they can beat anybody. But they haven't for two months.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing the action tomorrow night. Ken, thanks for this. And uh, best of luck with the the Golden Knights for the rest of the season. We'll see how this plays out. (laughs) I
2: appreciate it. Yeah, it's actually interesting that we have something to look forward to. Usually we're just looking at playoff position. Now we're looking at the cut line. It's different.
0: Well, thank you very much for listening to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. If you like what you heard, guess what? You can hear more every weeknight on cjob from 6 30 to 9 p.m of course that is when the jets are not playing because if the jets are playing then i don't have a show but i'll be part of the pre and post game coverage anyway thanks again for tuning in subscribe if you'd like we're available on itunes and other places i'd imagine so farewell until we meet again